This morning we continue our study of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. And our scripture passage comes to us from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 uh, to 18. Uh, no, that's not right. It's 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 11. As soon as I looked down, I thought, hmm, I have the wrong text here. Okay. Great start. Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you all know very well the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night nor to the darkness. So then, let us not be like the others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God has not destined us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another, and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. As we continue working through this letter, we're going to follow the natural progression of this section here. And this morning, um, we're going to look at three things. Uh, The day of the Lord, the way we live, and the community we build. We've entitled this whole series, The Already and Not Yet, because as I've been mentioning many times, it's a term that theologians use to, to grapple with the implications of the space that... As believers we live in, Christ's resurrection and his ascension occurred, and that certainly meant significant things, with a sense in which his kingdom has come. But the old creation rumbles along, and we are in a world of brokenness and sorrows and tears and death, and so there is the not yet of what will be fulfilled and gloriously redeemed and renewed that comes with his return, but we live in this space, this tension. So how do we live? And Paul cared very much about this little church. Like I mentioned uh, numerous times, he was only there for three weeks. Uh, a number uh, in the book of Acts, it says that a number of, of these Thessalonians came to faith in Jesus Christ. A number of prominent women came to faith in Jesus Christ. And they, they made up this church. And then three weeks later, he's gone. And so now he's writing to them because he cares very deeply about how they live in the tension. Life is difficult for them. They're being persecuted. Things are heating up with Rome in a massive way. And they're worried about a number of things. And so he writes to them in this section about these three things we'll look at this morning. So first, let's look at the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment and deliverance. This this theme of the day of the Lord, it spans both Testaments. If we go back to the Old Testament, the, the fall of humanity in Genesis 3, where we reject God in favor of being our own God, leads to the building of the city of man in Genesis 11, Babylon, the Tower of Babel. So that rejection of God very quickly leads to building a city uh, that spurns God. We will chase our own desires, appetites. We will define for ourselves uh, truths. And so that 
ancient city, that first ancient city of, of Babel, of Babylon, becomes an icon throughout all of the Old Testament scripture of all of the cities uh, of mankind where we just follow that same destructive pattern of rejecting God in favor of being God. And uh, as, as Babylon becomes this icon in the biblical story, you move into Exodus, and the next Babylon shows up, and it's Egypt. And they're the oppressive power that, of course, enslaves Israel, and they're, they're dying uh, terrible deaths of, uh, in slavery in Egypt. And so the Pharaoh and Egypt is the new Babylon. And so when they are delivered from Egypt, they call that day the Day of the Lord. The Day of Deliverance is the Day of the Lord. It's, and they celebrate it with the Passover. And so there's this celebration that their deliverance has come and that God's judgment has come on these oppressive powers. But as you move through the Old Testament, <clears throat> an interesting and tragic thing happens. Another Babylon rises up, but it's not the Babylon you'd expect. Because by the time you get to the, the book of the prophets, the prophet Amos, Amos starts writing about this oppressive power, and the oppressive power is actually the people of Israel. The oppressed have become the oppressors. And the entire book of Amos is Amos saying to the people of God, you better not pray for the day of the Lord because the day of the Lord is going to be directed at you. It's a tragic turn of events. But as the, as the narrative rolls through uh, uh, you know, the rise and fall of multiple powers in, 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 uh, in uh, biblical history, Israel then, shortly after that, falls under siege to the next Babylon, which is Babylon, how the Old Testament ends. And the way that the Old Testament ends is essentially that everything's been undone from the beginning. By the time you get to uh, Babylon coming in and Daniel and his friends are are being ushered in as slaves, the walls of Jerusalem are destroyed. So that undoes the book, you know, the work of Nehemiah. The temple's been destroyed. That undoes the work of Solomon. The law of God has been destroyed. It's nowhere to be found. That undoes the the work of Moses. They're back in slavery and they don't have, you know, their, their uh, livelihoods any longer. And so that undoes the work of Abraham. By the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, it's just like everything's been flattened. And so this day of the Lord has been this constant theme. And then when Jesus comes on the scene and God, the God of all history, who's not been, you know, angry and wringing his, wringing his uh, fingers together, just wanting to destroy humanity, but with tears... This God of holiness and of judgment and of sovereignty is continually moving toward humanity in this scandalous contradiction of what we deserve and this undeserved grace. He incarnates in Jesus Christ, and when Jesus Christ is born, there's a new Babylon, and it's Rome. And that's where we pick up this letter. So it's just always been. And it is today the same way. There is always the quote-unquote Babylon. There's always the oppressive power that is standing on the necks of people, bringing destruction in the world. It's not difficult to, for us to you know, see these things in our, in our newsfeed, of course. But this day of the Lord is a day of deliverance. And it's the promise that God will um, <clears throat> deliver our, this world of ours from corruption and sadness and tears. He will bring about the renewal that he has in his story. And that's what we find in the poetic uh, imagery in the book of Revelation. And we talk about that often. I've mentioned it numerous times during this teaching that you read through uh, Revelation 5 and 6. And how does the new exodus happen? How does the day of the Lord happen? And you see that it's not Jesus on the rampage. It's not God on the rampage. In the book of Revelation, he who is the Christ, but he is depicted poetically as a lamb with the marks of slaughter. 
So God, unlike every other world power who established the kingdom by just decimating the enemy, God incarnates and comes in Jesus Christ, unlike any ruler that the ancient world had ever seen. And he does not accrue power to destroy his enemies. He lays his life down, sheds his own blood to save his enemies. Who's all of us? Because the beginning of the biblical narrative is nobody actually wants God. So everybody that God has ever saved in the history of humanity has been his enemy. Because we don't want him. And still true. And so this is this day of deliverance. The day of the Lord. In verse 3 he says, you know, there's going to be people who say peace and security when this day comes. But who's saying that? Who's saying the peace and security? The world has always been in a state where there's been, uh, you know, billions of people who have not experienced peace and security. So who's that about? That's about the, the particular power. Standing on the next of the week, saying peace and security. There was a term during the time of Thessalonica. It was Pax Romana, Latin for the peace of Rome. How did they, how did they achieve that peace? Not by sitting down with the power of the pen and diplomatically having discussion. It's the sustained imperialism. And those in power laugh at God. You know, 300 years, 380 years before this was written, there's a political treatise by Plato called The Republic. And 10, 10, 10 book uh, work. And the, and the first five almost, it's like this philosophical ascension to the possible ways that you could govern society and that it could flourish. Goes through how could monarchy be successful? How could an aristoc- uh, aristocracy be successful? How could a democracy uh, be successful and he unpacks these arguments and then the last five books he starts undoing them saying here's why the monarchy can't be successful because it turns to tyranny and how the aristocracy can't just have wealthy people with, with power and influence who would care for the commonwealth of people because that can turn to oligarchy and then you've got democracy which we would say ah yes the savior oh the political savior democracy and Plato's like that's the worst one because democracy leads to bankruptcy. There's, there are a lot of beautiful, wonderful things about democracy, but it's limited. Because the most people raising their hand doesn't constitute truth. There's been many times in world history where the most people raise their hand and decide that the majority wants to eliminate the minority. So it's limited. And as Plato sort of has this sort of philosophical crisis, the last five books of his Republic, is a couple phrases he says that really struck me when I was working through it. One was, he says, Oh, my dear Claucon, I feel that this political endeavor will lead us to prayer. And he's joking, but he's just like, oh, no. And he, and, and he spends a great deal of time saying, how are we going to have a just city when there are no just cities, when all of the cities have been founded on bloodshed? And he's unraveling the dilemma where is the just city? Who is this just man? Who's the person who can rise up and, and, and give a perfect, just unquestionable, clear jurisprudence that just brings proper judgment? And he starts having a crisis because he realizes we all wiped blood from our swords and built civilizations. And everybody's sort of complicit. He's unraveling all of this. This is 300 years before Jesus Christ the just man would come to build the just city. But just to be clear, I'm not saying that Plato's Republic is some sort of divine providential book. I'm making the connection to say there's this thing he's crying out for that comes in Jesus Christ. That if, if not for divine judgment, there's no one that can crawl up into that seat and proclaim their own judgment and deny the exclusive truth claims of God and then assert their own truth claims in the next breath. 
It's just an odd contradiction. And so this idea that Paul is giving of, uh, it's not an idea, sorry, this, this promise of the day of the Lord is, he's saying all this because he wants to encourage the, these oppressed people, this oppressed church. It says in verse 3 that the destruct, destruction is going to come. And um, <clears throat> uses the word alephros in the Greek, which means to, to be completely undone and to suffer total loss. That's pretty glorious news if you're the oppressed. The day of judgment, the day of deliverance, depending on your point of view, depending on your, uh, your trust and your bending your knee to God, confessing that as, as humans we will be homeless utopians, that we can't be God, that we need to, we need to uh, give our, our, our hearts and our lives to the one who came to save us in grace, who rose from the grave, Jesus Christ, trusting that only in trusting in God's divine judgment and justice um, that we can stop the endless cycle of retaliation. Because if there is no divine judgment, and if Jesus Christ did not raise, uh, rise from death, and there is no God, what is the motivator to live a life of nonviolence? What is the motivator to say we have been uh, we have been unjustly treated? That our lives have been destroyed, but we are not going to retaliate in vengeance. This is not something that really most of us in this room can relate to. Some of you relate to this perfectly, because frankly, we have refugees, people who fled for their lives in this church, who have witnessed and survived the destruction like none of us will ever fathom. So this, this, this conversation about judgment in the day of the Lord, it hits different. As the modern, we can sit back in our chair and say, oh, how do I feel about this? What do I think of this God of, of, of judgment? And is this, is, is this um, somehow abhorrent to my modern sensibilities? But it is the belief in divine judgment that liberates the Christian from having to live a life of exacting their own judgment. And justice and vengeance. This is the this is the encouragement Paul is giving to the Thessalonians and to us by extension to not just follow into the same patterns. And then he gives this image of this all happening and arresting uh, the world, like labor pains hitting. Now this is an analogy that I don't understand, but many of the women in here absolutely do understand it, that that when once the contractions start, all your plans are over. An unstoppable thing has begun. Oh, you thought you were doing this today? No, you're not. It just everything comes to an absolute irreversible end. And again, that is very good news. If your family's been killed in the streets, if your livelihood has been destroyed, if it, there's, there's a thousand ways that, that, that plays out, the horrors of it. And again, if I just dial it back a bit for a second, because the, speaking of war is low-hanging fruit, but I want you to consider for a moment how all of us contribute in some ways to the ways in which the world is not a loving and caring and generous pl- place to be. The book of Proverbs says death and life are in the power of the tongue. So there are ways in which all of us are complicit. And praise God that he is not just a God of justice and judgment. But he is a God of scandalous undeserved mercy. You see, in the end, nobody's getting away with anything. And frankly, I think that's very good news. The problem, though, is I also deserve that judgment. <laughs> because 
I have contributed to the hurt and the pain and sorrow by being unloving and unkind and selfish in a myriad of ways. And so I praise God that all who will turn to him. And repentance doesn't mean saying, I'm sorry. Repentance means you flip your life around and you start going in a completely other direction by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by our own pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. But that repentance means that all those who repent don't receive the judgment that we deserve. The labor pains just show up, bang. What are you doing? You thought you were doing it, you're not doing it. We can, that's why we can't do eschatology um, like, like a C-section. Books and charts and the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And oh, 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 look at these world events. Oh my goodness, you're not, you're not scheduling a C-section. That's the, the, the image is labor paint. It's just, it's happening now. So what does this mean for us? It moves on. It, it leads us to the, the next thing, which is the way, do we, way, the way we live. So how does Paul want the Christians living and us by extension? And the answer is, in times of great darkness, sober, not surprised. Says that we belong to the light. We don't belong to the darkness. Uh, so that removes us from having a self-righteous posture. Right? We don't look out on our neighbors and the world and our places of vocation or people who don't share our faith with like a self-righteous sort of. I find your lack of faith disturbing. This sort of a dark, grim. There's a soberness to the way the Christian relates. You know, the Old Testament view of history is linear. And I walked us through it earlier. It's just linear. It's just moving through history. But the New Testament, it's linear, but it's, also, it's parallel. And this is why Paul speaks this way. And this is how you and I ought to live and relate to the difficulties and the horrors and the stresses and the anxieties of our world. Is that the old creation is rumbling, rumbling along. Jesus Christ comes, God writes himself into human history irreversibly through his glorious life, his atoning death, his divine resurrection, a point in human history that changes everything. And so as human history continues to move on, there's now a, a parallel reality, if you will, which is why when Jesus spoke about his kingdom, he kept talking about it in two ways. It's like it already came, but it's coming. And particularly in the Gospel of Mark, it's just back and forth all the time. The kingdom that's here, but not yet, already and not yet. So Paul wants us to be very sober, not surprised, not just getting sucked into uh, the sort of uh, emotional uh, uh, fray that everybody else is getting sucked into that doesn't share our faith. He doesn't want the church to assimilate with the culture. And just sort of become children of darkness and become disciples of the shifting values of our particular time and location in history. The church is not to assimilate. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means, oh no, I'm living in a completely different way here. We're not to have that anxiety and pessimism. Just refusing to be ministers in a city. Refusing to be involved in civic life. Keep our mouths shut. Live in a Christian ghetto. Just live, live from church event to church event. No. It's not that. It's also not naivety and shock. Constantly surprised. Constantly dislocated. Constantly being shaken. We're not, we shouldn't be surprised by anything. Sorrow, yes. Sadness, for sure. But not surprised. 
there's a lot of people who are surprised because we keep on looking at it, around at each other as you know, children of the Enlightenment. And we go, come on, guys, we're better than this. Do better. We're not better than this. Somebody wakes up and wants to nudge the world in a beautiful direction, and somebody else wakes up and says, let's wreak havoc. This has always been. It's always been this way. We will not educate ourselves out of the human problem. Science advances in ways that are mesmerizing. Scientific technological advancement is staggering. Advancement of the human heart? Good grief, man. We can find every problem today that you can find 2,000, 3,000, 5,000, 10,000 years ago. The same problems in the human heart exist because we need a savior. We need to be reunited. We are dislocated from our loving and creating God and we need to be relocated in him. So there shouldn't be that naivety and that shock. He wants us to be sober, not derailed and paralyzed with fear. Confident in dark times because we grip to hope. We grip to God's perspective on things. That there will be renewal. That his judgment will come and that will bring deliverance. But also glorious undeserved mercy. Scandalous grace. God has been moving from the jump through history. Saving uh, people that want nothing to do with him and don't desire him. This is the goodness of our God. So he says, I want you to be awake and not drunk. I want you to be sober. Live, live according to who you belong to. This is the idea. Don't fall asleep and be indifferent to the ways of God. And then in verse 7, he says, what does this way of living look like? And he gives a poetic image, and it's of putting on armor. And you look at the life of Jesus, and we know that this isn't like entering into a culture war, because that's not what Jesus did. But it's armor nonetheless. It's this, it's this image of... The heart being guarded with faith and love. Our minds being guarded with the hope of salvation. The guarding of the heart, the guarding of the head. That God is designed to carry us through. That from our point of view that we are relating to the difficulties and the sadness and the sorrows of our newsfeed, Not with the same sentiments of everyone around us, but with a sense of pervasive hope. Inside. Years ago, <coughs> I coached football when our boys were younger in the city. I coached Warhawks football for a number of years. And there was this little guy named Ben. And Ben, when I say little guy, I mean the biggest guy. And Ben was so cute. He had this very round, full face. And when he put that fo- football helmet on, it just got rounder and fuller. It was, he was the cutest football player I've ever coached. My, kid, my boys are crying out. Sorry, you guys are the cutest. Sorry, my bad. Other than my sons. Good save. Ben was so cute. And uh, he went in and he got hit, as, as, you know, as one does. And uh, he came out, he was crying, and he didn't want to go back in. And I saw it happen, and it was very gentle. And little kids playing football. When you're in high school and college, I mean, that's when it's like getting into a car accident every 24 seconds. But when you're a little kid... They kind of fall over like turtles that can't get up off their backs. They kind of roll them over and they get up like bobbleheads. Like that's, it's not, I watched it happen. I'm like, you're going to be okay. But he was upset. He was crying. He didn't want to go back in there. And I said, Ben, Ben. And I wanted to help him. I said, Ben, come here, come here, come here, Ben. And I stood him in front of me and, uh, and I, I patted him on the shoulder pads. I said, did that hurt? And he started, no. And I hit him a little bit harder. Did that hurt, Ben? Are you okay? No. And his crying turned to laughing, and he was crying and laughing. And I started tapping him on the side of his helmet. I said, did that hurt? And, and I, I wasn't really thinking about what that looked like from the bleachers. I just, like, 
it, it was like a really great Disney moment as I was just coaching this little kid. You can get back in there, Ben. You're going to be good. It's all good. But from, from 50 yards away, I just looked like I was just smacking the kid around. What are we doing? And that is a little bit the way the modern reader thinks about this, this day of the Lord and the judgment of God and how we, we relate as a church. And God is intimately with us, wanting us to guard our hearts and our minds with the armor of the nature of Christ that carry us through the struggle. And sometimes from the outside, from our point of view, our naivety, we're like, why don't you, why don't you just wrap it up? Why don't, you just wave your, why don't you just wave your finger and like fix everything in the world? And any of these sorts of arguments come up. How can you have a God that's so powerful and loving that, he's in, that you know, he permits all of this suffering in the world? I mean... The, the fact that you desire your child to be responsible makes the opportunity for them to be irresponsible possible just by virtue of giving them agency. So, even an infant can slap their parents in the face if you hold them high enough. And so God giving us dignity and creating us in his image use that agency every day to reject him. It's not that God is doing a terrible job being God. It's that we are doing a terrible job being God. And so the text continues, and he says in verse 9, God has not destined us to suffer wrath. He's not destined us to suffer wrath. And he's talking to a Greek church. And that's important. Because I think if you uh, were under the, uh, under the impression at the time, as many who rejected Jesus Christ were, they would have looked out at the Greeks and been like, no, you are absolutely destined. For God's wrath. You're, you're in the wrong camp. And what this reminds us throughout the New Testament is that, that God is not tribal in the sense that he chose the people of Israel so that through them they would bless every nation. That was his plan from the jump. They failed at it, but that was his plan from the jump. And now he's saying to a group of people who have no business saying that they're the children of God, culturally speaking, and he's saying God is not destined you to suffer wrath. You know, God's sovereignty is not fatalism. We believe in the sovereignty of God and we teach it here because God is sovereign and none of us can be saved apart from his grace. And his sovereignty is humbling. But God's sovereignty does not remove human agency. The Bible doesn't ever teach that. Jesus is walking around the streets calling people to turn to him and to trust in him and to repent and believe in him. God's God's sovereignty is not this eraser of, of human agency. It's not like Greek fatalism. My uh, systematic theology prof, Dr. Michael Allen, described it like this. We, we often, as moderns, think of God's sovereignty like a chair. And if God's sitting in it as sovereign, there's no room for me. And if I'm sitting in it making decisions for my life, there's no room for God to be sovereign. He says the Bible doesn't try and neatly tie a bow around that. It's just teaching us that God's in his sovereignty, in his greatness... That he has moved throughout history desiring that his wayward creation would turn to him. That we would be spared the wrath to come. This wrath of God. And when we talk about the wrath of God, it conjures up all kinds of images for people. And we use a backdrop of our own experience of wrath. And we use our imagination about wrath or terrible traumatic things in our past about people of wrath. We project that onto God. Well, that must mean what God's wrath is. Someone in a fit of rage, an angry, abusive drunk. Somebody who you have to walk on eggshells around all the time because if you say or do the wrong thing, they're explosive. 
And so we read the wrath of God and we just project this. But God's, all of those demonstrations of wrath that is talked about, they're tremendously sinful. <clears throat> and God's wrath is judicial. It is fixed. His, when, when, when humanity rejected him in Genesis 3, his, his wrath was postured towards sin immediately. God was not wrathful for all of eternity. It's not a part of his nature where he's just the trinity before the, before the cosmos was created. God was one part love and one part wrath. His wrath is in response to the brokenness of the thing that he loves. And so he says that we are spared from this, from this wrath that just as God is a God of justice, he abounds in tremendous mercy. So we have to understand his wrath in a way that showcases just the goodness of his gospel. Because I'll tell you something. The, the sermon that was preached on Pentecost when thousands of people came in didn't open up with, hey guys, wrath is coming. All the conversations about wrath in the New Testament are for the church. does two things. One, it's alleviating to the people who are, have their necks being stepped on by oppressors. The second thing, people who are just going through religious motions who could care less about the sin in their lives. All of this conversation about judgment and wrath is sobering. Say, I want to live in congruence with where history is headed. And so, the context for God's wrath, when God is asked in Exodus 34 to showcase his holiness, and Moses says, show me your holiness, he, he says, the Lord, the Lord, I am the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Slow to anger in the Hebrew means long-nosed. And this image of the long-nosed God versus the God who's just nostril blasting all the time, just on a hair trigger. This is, not the, this is not the wrath of God. He says, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. That's, that's his words for describing himself when Moses says, show me your holiness. He goes, I'll tell it to you. Ezekiel 33. God says, I take no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked, but that they would turn and repent and turn from their wickedness. So you see, the wrath of God and the tears of God are all wrapped up in one. Is radical patience and love as he moves towards us. And the final thing as I close this morning is the community that we build. So there's a way that we're to live with this patience, love, a soberness in these difficult times. Not with a self-righteousness because we have to understand that we're, we all contribute in various ways. We live lives of humility and confession and we desire to more and more emulate Jesus Christ and walk in obedience to him. There's implications of his atonement and his union, union with him and being indwelt by the Spirit to live that way. And then lastly, it leads to the community we build, which is intentionally and joyfully. It's a labor of love. I, Paul, Paul closes with this, and I'm going to close with this. He says, therefore, encourage and build each other up. And it, it's, it's a little stronger in the original language because we can read it like, oh, yeah, just be like, hey, how are you doing? Um, the word for encourage is parakaleo, which is to be a legal advocate. And the word for build up is oikodomeo, uh, which is uh, the one who builds a house. Paul is saying, encourage each other. In the people in, the, in these seats around you, encourage them and build them up like it's your job. <laughs> like you're a lawyer, like you're a, a carpenter. Care deeply about each other. Be intentional about the way that we build community and encourage each other. Come alongside each other with the sadness and the sorrows that come with living in difficult times. In these small ways, making the meal, having someone over for a coffee, going for the walk, 
It's really it being a labor of love to care about the others in this room with one another. Giving of your time. Shoulder to shoulder ray of hope feeding the poor. Out there in the, other, in the kids' classrooms teaching our children. Bringing your gifts here. Setting up. Tearing it. Whatever it is. Small is powerful. Believe it. There's this encouragement, this love, this labor of love. Jesus Christ died for us so that we're awake or asleep. We would live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as you're doing. Let's pray.